0: There is an outline or a handout for this morning's class. If you don't have one, please raise your hand really high so that the fo- the men can get one to you. It's uh, the study of the book of Malachi, which we're going to continue in <laughs> Lord willing finish this morning. We began this a few weeks ago uh, studying the book of Malachi in our Old Testament survey, this final prophet of the Old Testament, and it uh, has become and is a very precious book, uh, as we uh, hope we'll learn even more so as we study today. Just running very quickly over the material we've already seen, for those who may not have been here, and just to bring us all up to date, and that is we looked at who wrote the book. It's written by a man by the name of Malachi. His name means my messenger. Uh, It was written most likely during the time of Nehemiah's uh, uh, building of of the walls and Ezra and Nehemiah's. Uh, Efforts at reforming the people of God after they'd come back from 70 years in captivity. It was written to the people uh, as a whole, uh, the sons of Jacob, uh, uh, Israel, uh, those who are are known as God's chosen people, those who have been brought back and brought back to the land, uh, mostly from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, mostly from Judah, uh, but yet still be viewed as the whole nation. Uh, There's a special reference given in chapter 2 in particular to the priests and their roles in the problems that the people faced. Uh, In terms of historical purpose, we saw that there's not much by way of historical narrative uh, does fill us in to some degree on some of the challenges they were facing at the time of Nehemiah, as it repeats many of those same uh, sins. Uh, that were there and that need to be dealt with. There's a lot of truth about uh, God himself. He's called Jehovah of hosts or Yahweh of hosts. He's the one who is the, the one who rules over all of the hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven, the armies of earth. And uh, He's the God of Israel who makes covenant with his people and is keeping those covenants. A God of sovereign love, a God who is a father and a master to his people, a father and creator to his people, a God who is just, immutable, honest, sovereign over all the nations, and who communicates with his people. We've seen all of those things already. We'll come to some of the ethical purposes when we get to the uh, applications, so I'll skip over that. There is a great deal about uh, the birth of Christ that we find here and the coming of Christ. Elijah is to precede the coming of Christ. That refers to John the Baptist. Christ is the messenger of the covenant. He is the one who has come as the mediator of the new covenant. And he is the judge of all the earth, to mention a few places where uh, we have reference to Jesus Christ here in this prophecy. But then moving on to the outline, i just have you, you note as you have the outline there in front of you, and you should be at the bottom of page one, uh, which we'll be looking at today and then going over to the applications on page two. In verse one, we read that uh, very generic, very simple introduction to the book. It's just one verse, one line, the oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel through Malachi. So here it is. It's a burden. It's from the Lord. It is a divine revelation that comes to the people of Israel from the servant Malachi. And then there's that unique structure that we saw last time, found in in uh, chapter one, verse two, all the way through chapter four, in which uh, God is uh, disputing, as it were, with there's disputations, as they're called, or there's questions and answers, and God is doing really, but pretty much. All of the talking in in the entire book. Now, it's coming through the prophet Malachi, and so one one of the challenges or one of the ways that uh, go back and forth in the reading of the books is they say Malachi is wanting to say this to the people. Well, yes, but he's God's mouthpiece. So we don't just want to make it a human effort that Malachi is giving to try to correct the people of God. This is ultimately the word of God coming to the people of God. Now notice with me uh, just the, the first section, if you will, beginning at verse 2, where we, have a, we can get an idea of the, how this disputation works. I have loved you, says Yahweh. And that is, this is a statement now. He makes a statement. And then he, who, that is Yahweh, God, who knows the hearts of his people, now tells them what their basic response is to his statement. And so he says, but you say, how have you loved me? And it's not just a rhetorical device. This is God searching the hearts of his people and saying, this is what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I know how you're responding. And let me tell you exactly what I see when I look into your hearts. You're saying, how have you loved me? And then God answers that. In this case, he answers it by pointing them back to some things that happened years before. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh. I have, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And he goes on to describe that. So it, this is the uh, way that the book unfolds before us. And so we have in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 1, divine love defended. Divine love defended, as you see there in your notes, or another way to, to look at that is uh, they distrusted God's covenant love. God says, "I loved you, I love you," and they say, "How have you loved us?" They distrust that that it's actually true. How can that be true? We're still in in captivity. We're still under or we're still under these rulers, though we've come back to the land. We're small. Uh, we don't understand uh, what you're doing with us. How can this be love? They don't like the way God's showing his love. And so they're just saying, well, you, do you really love us? And then the second a disputation beginning in verse 6 and going through chapter 2 and verse 9, directed more specifically at the priests. And here he has the corrupt priests condemned. Because they despised God's worship. They just said, listen, you know, we're not going to be too fastidious about this. Bring whatever you want, whatever you've got. Uh, if it's not a perfect lamb, that's okay. If it's a little spotted or if it's a little ill or if it's got a broken leg, okay, that's okay. We'll just, we'll, we'll offer it anyway. And so the priests were despising are corrupting uh, the worship of God and God exposes that. And then they're corrupting the instruction uh, they're not teaching what they're supposed to be teaching. They're supposed to be those who bring the word of God to the people. Chapter 2, verses 1 and one through 8. And now this is the commandment for you. Is this, now this commandment is for you, O priest. Chapter 2, verse 1. If you do not listen, if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says Yahweh of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not Taking it to heart. And so he challenges them about the way that they're not teaching the way that they're supposed to. They're not handling their role properly. And so they are dishonoring not just the worship of God, but actually dishonoring God's name. So since they are dishonoring God's name, God says, A curse will come upon you. The third disputation is found in chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. Do we not all have one father, says God? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of your fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Yahweh, for he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, God here has an extended introduction in terms of describing the sins of God's people here. And he's really, in this section 10 through 16, addressing the matter of covenant infidelity. He says, so as to profane the covenant of your fathers. You're not keeping the covenant. And that is displayed in the fact that they are either marrying foreign women and having mixed marriages that's what may be understood there at the end of verse 11 he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god and is the people of judah are doing this or it may be speaking of the fact that they're they're actually committing idolatry maybe a spiritual reality for they were doing both at the time uh, in nehemiah's day so god addresses them uh, their violation of god's covenant as I mentioned back then, uh, last time we did this, I said dealing treacherously as it's, just, as it's translated in the New American Standard is, was one tra- translated by one man as have broken faith. You've broken faith. You've, you've broken uh, the, the, the covenant faithfulness that should have existed among you. But then notice in verse 13. As he talks about their worship, they come, they're crying, they're they're weeping, they're groaning, uh, but God seems to no longer be accepting them with favor. They're not, again, not seeing what they want. Yet you say, for what reason? Why are we not being received? Why are we not being accepted by God? Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously through, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. God says, you're not taking seriously the covenant relationships that I've established. You disdain the covenant you've, that I've made with you, and you disdain the covenant you've made with your wife. And this just shows how you disdain and how you dislike the way God has ordered the relationships that are supposed to be, be, be made you're not being faithful. You're not being faithful to me. and It's being evidence of the fact you're not being faithful to your wife. And not being faithful to your wife is, is making it clear that you, you really don't love me. So what are you doing coming and worshiping me when you're not being faithful to her at home? And so he addresses the matter of them uh, not living up to God's standards within their home. In chapter 2, and I'm doing this quickly because, again, we did this uh, in the last class. Uh, And then in chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3 and verse 6, false accusations answered. uh, They doubted God's justice. I think this is about the place where we left off. So let's uh, delve in here, beginning at verse 16 16 of chapter 2, verse 17, chapter 2. You have wearied Yahweh with your words. Now, words are really important, and we're going to come back to that again and again today. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say... And this is how far they've gone, right? So they were despising God's worship by taking it lightly and taking his requirements lightly and not really wanting to follow the regulative principle because it was just a bit too strict and a bit too difficult. They didn't want to go down that route. The priests weren't teaching the things they were supposed to be teaching. And then they're not being faithful to God and his covenant with them. And they're not being faithful in their covenant relationships with their wives and they're, and, they're, and they're going back and forth with God and saying, you know, God, you say one thing, but we don't believe what you say is actually true. How can you say that about us? And God says, your, your, your words are wearying me. And that's a frightening thought. That we can weary God. Now, in a sense, no, he's not actually weary like you and I get weary, you know, with that, that child that just, you know, won't be quiet, you know, or that, that, that. Carping that just won 't go away, the person just complain complain complain, complain and he, and you just get tired of it just it wears you out So that's it 's not that he's using a, a, a picture here he 's like somebody who's being worn out by their words he's tired of their words they say how but they don't know how we worried you. look how far they 've gone this is this is how you've worried in that you say everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them or where is God, the God of justice. In other words, they've gotten to the point where they don't even think God is just anymore. They're questioning wait a minute, God, what are you doing? What, you're, you're not acting fair here. You're not dealing with us the way we think justice should, should present itself. We're, we're, we're really upset. We, we think you're treating that which is evil good and that which is good evil. And so God then gives them uh, a prophecy. And he gives them a prophecy to, to tell them, no, I, I am still the God that I've always been, and I am a just God. And I'm going to send my messenger, and he's going to clear the way before the Lord, the one that you say you're seeking, the one that you say you're worshiping. And the messenger of the covenant, that is not the one who was coming before the Lord, but the Lord himself, the messenger who comes, Jesus Christ, the word will come. He's coming. So the judge is coming. coming. Here's the answer to your, I'm not just. The judge is coming. You accuse me of being unjust? Well, I'll send my judge and you'll know about justice. And when he comes, it's going to be a time of purification. And the first thing he's going to do is he's going to be that smelter and that purifier of silver. He's going to come like that refiner's fire and fuller soap. And he's going to clean out all that which is impure. He's going to purify the sons of Levi. You know, and if you purify something that's gold, you put gold in 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 a hot uh, crucible and you heat it up to the point that it melts, and you get the you get the 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 impurities that float to the top, and then you can scrape those off. But what happens if there's no gold in there? Then it just all vaporizes, right? It just all goes. He says, "This is what's going to happen." He says, "It's going to be a day. Of, it's going to be a day of testing." And I'm going to purify my people and I'm going to take care of this impurity that's among them. But I'm also going to put to the test those who are against me. Notice verse 5 of chapter 3. Then I will draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me. Now it sounds to me very similar to something we read later in our Bibles. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 8, but for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. In other words, I, I am going to deal with these sins. They are going to be judged appropriately. But then as it we're going back to what he said at the very opening part of the, of the whole book, and again, that first disputation is about them, lo- the love of God for them. He now comes back to that and as it were hits a note about that in verse 6 of chapter 3. One of these precious verses to lay hold of. Pastor Smith highlighted this when he talk, taught on the love of God being immutable. For I, Yahweh, do not change. For the most part, I think many of us would expect to come after that, something that's going to terrify us. Because he is a just God who does not change. He is a holy God that does not change. But here he highlights more the love of God. He says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And when I come to that day of judgment, my people are going to know My love. And in the midst of judgment, they will not be consumed. They will not be burned up in entirety and cast off. And why is that? Because they've been good enough? Because after they were saved, they, they ran well enough? He says, no, because I don't change. My love is still set upon them, and I will keep them. And then that brings us to the next disputation. So in the midst of the the. False accusations that are answered, the that when they doubted God's justice, we come then to robbing God, being rebuked and remedied. There's a, a remedy given first, and then there's a rebuke given. This is robbing God, remedied and rebuked. They diverted God's resources. Now here in chapter Uh, 3 and verse 7, we're taking up definitely, this is where we left off the new material completely. So beginning at verse 7, follow along in your copy of God's word as I read Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. But you say... How shall we return? God has just graciously given them a remedy for the problem of being separate and distant from God. It's basically what we would call repentance, right? Return to me. Return to me and I will return to you. What a a wonderful promise in the midst of all this that God reaches out to his people and says, return to me and I'll return to you. I will draw near to you. And yet they say, "Mm, How shall we return? How can we do this? So, okay, so God says, Well, let me tell you one specific area. He goes on in verse 8 Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? So he answers, In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says Yahweh of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says Yahweh of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says Yahweh of hosts. So he puts his finger on one specific aspect of their sin. Having given them the opportunity to repent, now he says here's one area where you need to repent, it's very obvious, it's called tithing. Now the tithe in the Old Testament, if you were to go back to Numbers chapter 18, you would know, find in verses 21 to 24 that the sons of Levi were to be cared for by the tithe that was given at the, at the temple. People were supposed to give 10% and sometimes more than that in various, uh, various times in their, in their harvesting. And they were to give that uh, so that there would be a provision made for the Levites. We read in verse 21 of Numbers 18, "To the sons of Levi behold I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform the service of the tent of meeting." Now the tent the, the service of the tent of meeting was was being performed by the Levites who had been chosen by God so that the people of God would not die. It was so that they could come and offer sacrifices and have their sins dealt with. So they could come and offer sacrifices and have restoration of their relationship with God. The peace offering. They could sit down and have a meal with God. The, the, the relationship had been restored. And the Levites were central to this. The priests, and that's the priests and Levites I think are being lumped together here at this particular point. But the priests and Levites are being brought together because they're the ones who serve in the house of God in order for the people of God to be able to draw near to God. In order for the people of God to dwell, dwell in the presence of a holy God, they needed two things. They needed sacrifices, and they needed priests. They needed somebody to offer the sacrifice, and they needed a sacrifice that they could bring. Sacrifice that would be the means of, and the Old Covenant for atoning for their sins before God. And yet, for some reason, it's very very clear here, and we can even see that back in Habakkuk's day, where he tells them, you're building your own houses, but my house lays waste. Why aren't you giving to the place where I'm going to be meeting with you? Why isn't that a priority for you? Why is your own personal home, or your own personal homes, more important to you? Here, he just highlights the fact that they're not giving to God what he requires. One man wrote, it must not be forgotten that for Malachi, such matters as payment of tithes are significant insofar as they indicate a real relationship with God. I don't know how many of you remember back when we did the book of Leviticus, and I, and I went through the, the book of Leviticus in four messages, and one of the last chapters has to do with tithing. And you think, we've got all these things that have been going on, and all of a sudden he goes back to tithing. Well, isn't God just an, an amazing God? He knows us. Because sometimes what we do with our money indicates where our hearts are. Store up not treasure on earth where moth and rust can destroy. Now, we don't, we're not told here why they weren't giving, but they weren't giving the full tithe for the support of the ministry that was given for them to be able to approach a holy God. And so God says they're robbing him. It's a horrible thing to rob the true and living God. And God actually pronounces a curse on the people of Israel who don't give the tithe and promises blessings to those who do. He, to use a modern term, incentivizes. He says, listen, you give, don't worry, I'll take care of you. Notice what he says, verse 10. He promises them heavenly blessings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now this, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Heavenly blessing for those who gave the tithe. In verse 11, agricultural fruitfulness. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. You won't lose your grapes. You won't have your, your food being eaten up. You'll actually get a, a fruitful harvest. You'll, you'll have enough to satisfy yourselves. And then, in, and then he also promises international recognition. It's going to be so great, the blessings that will come, that he says, all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. I'm going to take care of you. You will not need to worry. They sowed physical things. They were going to reap physical blessings as well as spiritual blessings. Just like we read, In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 11, if we we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So which is the better? Which is the more valuable, the spiritual or the physical? The spiritual things, he says, are better, are of greater value. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now I'm not saying if you put $10 in the plate versus $1 in the plate that you're going to get a, a bigger bonus at the end of the year from your boss than you, than, you know, with a bigger gift to the, to the church. That's not what I'm saying. But God says, you give to me with that cheerful heart and with a whole heart, for the sake of my ministering to you and you being able to draw near to me. You provide appropriately for that as I have encouraged you to do and I'll take care of you. I'll take care of you. You can trust me. You see, it's really a matter of of distrust at the bottom here. In Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8, we read, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, I am not health, wealth, and prosperity, as I've, I've already said. This is not a matter of you put more in the plate and you'll get more. But you give more, and you can be sure that God is not going to, to be your debtor. That somehow he's, you know, he's going to make you, more, make you more poor. And even if you were more poor for a time, but you gave with a heart that said, I've got to give this to the Lord because I want this to go to God's work and I want God's work to go to the ends of the earth and I want God's work to prosper and these spiritual realities are far more important to me and then you sit and you say you know what I I don't have quite so much for my Thanksgiving meal my Christmas meal or my New Year's meal but you know what I've got is I've got a heart that is filled with the with with gratitude to God that he has given me a savior who died for me and I sit here thanking God that the spirit of God dwells in me and gives me the, the privilege of, of being his child and adopting me into his family. Let me just say this. If you don't put money in the, in the offering plate, God is not any poorer. You're robbing from God, but you're the one who will be poorer. Because God owns everything it's all his. Isn't that what the people of Israel found out when they went back? He says, oh, I need money to build my temple. Cyrus, Darius, give it. And he just puts his hands in their pockets and takes out the gold that he wants. His people leave the, 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 the land of Egypt as slaves and they've got absolutely nothing. What does he do? He says, Egyptians, give to my people gold. Give them clothing. That's in essence what he did. They had plenty when they came out. Why? Because God owns everything and he, he can take care of all of those things. But as, as I see over and over in the scriptures, I think one of the, the key lessons here is that how we use our money highlights what's important to us. How we use our money highlights what's really important to us. That brings us then to the final disputation. I'll leave that off for now. And we come now to chapter 3, verse 13, through chapter 4 and verse 3. Follow along as I read those, those verses. Malachi chapter three verse thirteen. Your words have been arrogant against me, and um, several of the translations got it better than the New American Standard. Arrogance is probably an appropriate uh, interpretation, but the word literally means just strong. Your words have been strong against me, says Yahweh. Yet you say, "What have we spoken against you?" I mean, I just read that, and my mind, I, I just want to hide. What have we been reading throughout this entire book? God says something and they say, what? Really? God says this, no, how? God says, you you mean, it's like the the whole thing is filled with these words against God's word. And so now he comes and he says, your words are strong against me. And they say, what have we spoken against you? But then notice how far they've gone. You see, it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And here he sa- they say this, you have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept, what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before Yahweh of hosts? So now we call the arrogant, and here's a different word that means insolent, it means proud, we call the proud ones blessed not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. They've come to the point of saying, you know what? God, you actually are favoring all these wicked people. You're doing good things for them rather than for us. These, these Babylonians are doing far better than we are. The Persians are doing far more than, better than we are as a little nation. And so they come with their hard words. They don't see it. They said, well, what have we said against you? Let's just think back for a minute at the, at the questions that have been asked and answered so far. In chapter 1, verse 2, here were their words. But you say, how have you loved us? When God said, I love you. In verse 6 of chapter 1, but you say, how have we despised your name? Well, they didn't take care of the worship properly, and by not following God's rules in worshiping him, they therefore despised his very name and his very reputation in the earth. In that, you say, for what reason does he not regard our offerings? God, you're not not taking us seriously here. Chapter 1, verse 13. You also say, the fifth question, how have we wearied him? Remember what they went on to say about God's justice. In chapter 2, verse 14, yet you say, where is the God of justice? Chapter 2, verse 17, yet you say, excuse me, that's where is the God of justice. Yet you say, again, how are we to return when he offers them a way of return? Verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, the eighth question, how do we rob you? And then chapter 3 and verse 8, what have we said against you? You see, all these words keep piling up, and, and they could be described, or God describes them, with one very graphic word arrogance. God says this, and they question him at every point. That's called arrogance. And the people of God spoke these hard words against them. And I remember a man saying years ago, why do, and explaining why people curse so much. You know, why do they have to throw out these words and, and discredit our Savior or, or just vile words? It's a, like a pause between each word. Why? Well, I thought it was very interesting that this man said, it's the effort of a small mind to make itself seem big. Oh, I'll just use some real strong words. Right? If we say it loud enough, we say it strong enough, well, then it's got to be important. God says those hard words are, are merely pure arrogance. They're rebellion. And they've gone so far now as to say, serving God is worthless. What do we get out of all this? Where am I seeing my fruit and my benefits? And they charge God with, with injustice. The ones who rebel are blessed, and they're getting away with their sin. Reminds me of Psalm seventy-three, and the psalmist said, "But then I went into the house of the Lord, and I saw their end, and they are in slippery places." The people here have gone really very arrogant in their speech against God. Now, gotten to a very frightful place at the at verse, by the time we come to verse fifteen. And there's a sense in which at verse 16, there's a a radical change. And we'll come back to this more in the morning service. But there's going to be a radical change in uh, the way speech happens. Because notice in verse 16, Then those who feared Yahweh spoke to one another, and Yahweh gave attention to it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and who esteem his name. Well, this is a very different speech. <laughs> Gone from people talking back to God to people talking to one another, people encouraging one another. He goes on in verse seventeen to encourage them. They will be mine," says Yahweh of hosts, "on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him." And so, there's this different kind of speech. Calvin sees this as as an expression of repentance. The word then means at that time. And it may mean that after having heard what the prophet said, those who feared the Lord repented and began to speak differently. Or it could be that there's a group of people within the people of God there who had this other characteristic called the fear of the Lord, which actually then set them apart. And fearing God, when they heard the warnings, they they understood them to be grave warnings when they heard the promises they laid hold of those promises and they sought to speak to one another about these kinds of things the true people of God were those who feared God and so God encourages them you know we've said this well I'll come back to that when I get to my applications but God encourages them by saying I'm gonna write your words down I want to remember those now again it's uh, anthropomorphic. It's, it's human language. right? God doesn't have to write anything down. But he says, I'm going to write these down. These will be written down in my presence in a book. And it reminds us something of what uh, happened to Mordecai, remember? He had done that good deed in preserving the life of the king. And then, when the king couldn't sleep, he's reading the history. And what does he read? Mordecai's Faithfulness to the king. Oh, was he, was he blessed? What, what happened to him? Oh, Nothing was done. Well, let's reward him. It's that kind of thing. God says, I'm going to use that same imagery to describe what I'm doing. I'm going to write these things down, and I'm going to remember them. And I'm going to adopt these people, and I'm going to take care of these people. And it will come in verse 18 that everybody will know the difference between the righteous and the wicked, and I will make it plain who serves me and who doesn't. So it's going to be plain when the judgment day comes. The wicked will be punished. And now we go into chapter 4 and verse 1. Behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant, here's that word insolent again, and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, so that they will leave neither root nor branch, root nor stock. There's going to be nothing left. But you who fear my name. He comes back to that other group. You who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, will rise with healing in his wings. The Son of Righteousness. Righteousness, either it's, it's either speaking of the Lord, I think it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Son of Righteousness. He's the perfectly righteous one, and he's going to radiate, as it were, the, the comfort and the light that comes to all of those who fear his name. And they will see him rising, he'll come with healing in his wings. Uh, the, the, the beams that will come, the commentators describe them as coming on wings down to God's people and in blessing them. The wicked, though, will be burned up. The righteous will be healed and they'll know great joy. Uh, the pictures are all farmland pictures, right? And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. They open the gate and guess what? All the calves just, woohoo, we're free! And off they went, just in joy and delight in the freedom of it. He says, this is what you're going to have, healing and joy, and you are going to be involved in triumph. For he says, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day, which I am preparing, says the Lord. So there will be this triumph that will come. Paul speaks of something of this, I think, in Romans 16, 20, when he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Or 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So we'll be involved in that triumph over God's enemies. There's two groups of people here. There's those who disdain God with their words, and there's those who who encourage one another with their words. Well, that brings us to the conclusion in verses 4 through 6 where he says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Remember the commandments. Three things in this conclusion. Remember the commandments of Yahweh. Remember the covenant obligations. These are the things which you are to remember and keep before you in order to live in my presence and to enjoy the blessings that I have for you. They are not going to gain the blessings by keeping the commandments, but these are the ways that they are supposed to live in order to live in the presence of God. Calvin makes the point that this continuance of the law is is to show us our sin on a regular basis so that we constantly know how much we need to be forgiven so we're constantly going back to God. Another way to understand that is is Romans 13, and that would be Romans 3.20, the law uh, exposing our sin, but the law outlining the shape of our love for God, Romans 13.8, 8 8 through 10, and Galatians 5.14. This is the way we show our love to God by keeping his commandments. But then we're also to anticipate the day of the Lord. Behold, he says in verse 5, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of Yahweh. This day of judgment is going to come, but before he comes, Elijah the prophet is going to come. Elijah is going to appear on the scene and he's going to declare a need for repentance and he's going to stand against all of of the wickedness just like in the days before and he stood one man among many for for God. And there's one that's going to come and we know that this speaks of, of Uh, John the Baptist, Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist is the one who comes as Elijah. But here's the thing. He says, I'm going to send a forerunner. I'm going to send somebody who's going to announce it's coming. Why would you send a forerunner? Why not just bring the day of the Lord And Because doesn't it tell us that the day is going to come like a thief in the night? He sends a forerunner to warn them. The day's coming. The day's coming. And actually, it's a forerunner for the Messiah, as we saw back in the earlier chapter, chapter 3 and verse 1. He's going to come. He's going to have the Messiah who's going to come first with restoration and salvation and then later for judgment. And then finally, the third thing uh, is to expect chapter 4 and verse 6. Expect the change of hearts. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will come and smite the land, not come and smite the land with a curse. Again, here's, here's, here's a, a, a promise uh, that there's going to be a time coming before the judgment comes for people to be able to avoid and, and be delivered from the judgment that's to come, the curse that's to come, the destruction that's to come. Now, this can speak of family relations. It may be that he's saying that uh, the one who comes is going to bring peace. And he's going to bring peace between fathers and sons and sons and fathers. There's no indication that there was family strife at this time in the history of Israel. I mean, Nehemiah doesn't highlight that. This book doesn't highlight that. Husbands and wives, yes, but not so much family strife. So I tend to think that the, uh, the, the better option in understanding this is that there is a new generation that will be made to love God like the fathers once did. Like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, like Moses, like David. That God is going to so work in the hearts that they will then be again of one heart. Both generations, all generations, both the degenerate generation of this day in repentance coming back and being restored. But whichever it might be, There's going to be a change of heart. And this is going to be the work of God. And so God is going to come and he's going to change men's hearts. As Luke chapter 1 verse 17 says of Elijah, that is of John the Baptist, the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, he will turn back the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make them a people prepared for the Lord. So it's a preparation for the coming of the Lord. One man put, said this, and, I'll, and then I'll get into the applications on the backside. Malachi is sensitive to the doubts and questionings of those whose hopes had so often been disappointed. The answer of this prophet, who is so concerned for the temple and its worship, is unambiguously eschatological. That is, it's in the end times. God himself will come in succession to the preparatory ministry of his messenger and by judging the wicked and vindicating those who have kept the faith will establish a kingdom of righteousness. God will establish his kingdom. Now, if you turn your sheet over uh, and look at the back here, I just want to go back over a number of the applications that we've seen from this book. I'm going to drop down to the place where it speaks of regarding worship. And if my headings have changed, that's just because it's another day and things change. Uh, and I apologize that yours might be a little different uh, if, you, if you have the older one. I don't remember how much I changed in these headings. But the first thing is there are several practical applications. The first regarding worship. It's very clear from the book of Malachi and from chapter 2 in particular that worship is to be conducted according to God's command. Self-satisfaction is never the answer to whether worship is good worship or not. Sincerity is not enough to say whether worship is good worship or not. Because we've all heard the saying, right? You can be perfectly sincere and you can be sincerely wrong. Happens in my house all the time. I know this was on Tuesday. Oh, no, that was actually Monday. I know that birthday is coming up on the 10th. No, it's actually on the 18th. Oh, you know, I'm sincere in my belief, but I'm sincerely wrong. Right? And this is is the fact. Sincerity is not enough. Self-satisfaction is never the answer. Calvin wrote, But believers are sons who are sure that their kind father will accept their obedience, however insignificant and imperfect it may be, as saith the Lord by Malachi, I will spare them as a father spareth his own son and serves them. So in other words, they can come with confidence, not because... Th- I got my quote a little out of place there. Let me get back here. So the first thing is, you would have to follow the rules. That was why these priests were being condemned. They weren't keeping the law. They were cutting corners for whatever reasons, making it easier for people to give, or because they didn't want to offend somebody, or it was hard times, and so we'll just, we'll just do whatever we want, uh, just to make it happen. Whatever the case was, worship is to be regulated according to God's Word. Now, Cunningham, in his historical theology, the first banner of truth book I ever bought, I read a quote, now it's decades ago actually, and I've I've never gone back to to look it up, but I should. But basically he said this, when Adam sinned against God, it became absolutely essential that if he was ever going to come back to God, that it had to be on God's terms. Think about this. God creates a man out of the dust. He gives him life. He gives him everything he needs. That man rebels against God. That man is not even comparable to God. How is Adam going to come up with a way that's going to please God to come back to him? It's absolutely ridiculous to think that that is going to happen. That dust is going to decide what God wants and what's acceptable to him. It's got to come from God. And that's the way it's been throughout the history of the people of Israel. You want to come back to God? You come back to God on his terms. You come back to God through the means that He establishes. You come back to God according to the rules that He establishes. And yet, at the same time, which one of us has ever offered worship that was perfectly sinless? Which one of us has ever approached our perfectly holy God, our thrice holy God, and given Him a sacrifice? Which of us has ever sung an entire hymn and thought about every word that we sang with our whole mind and our whole heart? And didn't get distracted about whether we hit that note right. Or didn't get distracted because somebody coughed over there and we had to look to see who it was. Or some child got up over there and we had to look to see. Which one of us can say that we've worshipped God even through one hymn? Now maybe you've done that. But the fact of the matter is, how then are we going to be able to offer anything to him? Oh, we heard it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. What a glorious reality. We are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's a verse you ought to memorize. through Jesus Christ. You see, in Christ, I can bring those offerings. As a son adopted in Christ, I can approach a heavenly father and offer him a prayer, offer him a hymn, offer him my praise, my tithes, my gifts, my service. And it's acceptable to him because it's washed in the blood of Christ. It's made possible by the grace of Christ. It's very, very important to realize that we are sons of God, and that we can approach our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. But another man said very helpfully, he said, Worship cannot simply be commanded. It has to be drawn out of us as we contemplate the gospel of our gospel and our hearts are stirred afresh by God's amazing grace to us. Now, worship can be commanded. We've all done that at home, right? Sit still and listen. Listen. Right? We've commanded worship, sing that hymn. It can be commanded, but his point is this. True worship, wholehearted worship, has to grow out of something. And that's why the whole thing begins with the love of God and understanding something of the love of God. And when the love of God is filling our hearts, it pours forth in our praise. Regarding tithing, let me move on. Several practical applications. The regular principle is essential. The presence of Christ is important, is essential, essential in our worship. But the regular, regarding tithing, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I'll just say, go listen to Pastor Martin's series on giving, where he highlighted every one of the principles to be found in that. Excellent messages in that. But basically, tithing, we can't come to the New Testament and say you've got to give 10%. I can't do it. But if old covenant saints, under the types and shadows, worshipped God and expressed a love for God by giving 10%, then we who have the full revelation and the completion of those promises, should we not be moved at least to give 10%? Out of love to God? Did we not hear in John Owen's treatise on us as a fellowship that central to our existence is the Word of God? Should we not then be doing all we can to support this work so that the Word of God can be heard and we can be changed by it? Should that not be a priority? And should that not be reflected in the way we use our money? Are we not convinced that the Word of God needs to go to the ends of the earth? And that this is the one thing that's really going to transform the world. Yes, we can give benevolence to Ukraine. Yes, we can give benevolence to people in in Israel. But what they really need is the gospel, ultimately. That benevolence needs to be attended with the the preaching of the word of God. And therefore, we need to give cheerfully. We need to give sacrificially. We need to give our best and not what's left over. And that's one of the things that uh, Mark Dever really highlights in his book, When he speaks of an illustration of Sam Houston, he says, After his baptism, Houston said he wanted to pay half of the local minister's salary. When someone asked him why, he responded simply, My pocket was baptized too. My pocketbook was baptized too. Right? We don't want to be anywhere close to the rich young ruler, do we? Who, because he had much, went away sad. Went away. May God help us that we would use our resources for the advancement of the kingdom. Again, Dever says, I pray that our churches would grow in faithfulness every year through the committing of our resources to the Lord and his work as we do. I have no doubt that God will provide, perhaps even entrust us with more. I praise God for how we have seen that in our church. And I can say that too. I praise God for the way you, you the brethren of God, have supported the work of God. And we went through 2020, and we had people saying, "How can we help the brethren? How can we do this for somebody else? How can we do?" And it was it was delightful to see the people of God saying, "We're going to come alongside and use what God's given us to help others." Wonderful. So I'm not up here saying you need to be giving more. Matter of fact, I'm going to come to a minute where I, later today where I'm going to highlight the fact I'm not calling you to give more. I'm calling you to do what's right. And may God use your hearts that you would give. What is right. But then beware of judging God by feeble sense. If ever there was something we could learn from the book of Malachi, it's this how often God uses wicked men and difficult circumstances to chastise his people, to instruct his people, to judge his people. And we need to stop grumbling against God and be patient before God. There's some of the brethren here in this place that you need to get upside alongside them sometime and talk to them about the trials they've been through and how God upheld them in the midst of them and the joy and delight they knew of God's presence in the midst of those trials. May God deliver us from judging God by our standards, but instead being patient. And when afflicted, even like the wicked, may we recognize that we have a God who loves us. Then, remember, words matter. This is so important. This whole book is about words. God knows every word you speak. We'll give account for every idle word. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We need to be careful with our words. But remember, God knows all the words. He knows the good ones, too. He knows when you went alongside that brother, that sister, and spoke that word of encouragement from the word of God. He knows when you sent that card and that note that encouraged somebody from the word of God. Words matter. And we need to remember that we live between the two comings of the Messiah. He's already come. Son of righteousness has risen with healing in his wings. He's already come and entered the temple. He's already come and, and made known the way of returning unto him through Jesus Christ the good news has gone forth and we can be encouraged. But in particular, that should encourage us that he's coming again. He says he's coming again. He promised he would come once. Did he come? Did he fulfill every promise that he said he was going to fulfill? Did he accomplish all that he came to accomplish? Has he gone and sat at God's right hand to rule over all things? Then is he going to come again? Absolutely. There is no doubt. And therefore, we can be encouraged. He is coming again. And may that govern our thinking as we anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm out of time, so let's end in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, this book is, is rich and helpful and you've given it to us for our good. Help us to learn from Malachi Ultimately, that you would be honored. Deliver us, O God, from despising you in any way, disdaining your worship in any way. Deliver us from sniffing at it and being weary of your worship, but to enter in with our whole hearts, with everything that we have, to bring honor and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.